In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at Asperient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cami and Sandy. Hi, Money Tale listeners. This is Sandy. Today, we speak with Steve Legler, who was delighted to learn that his future career was being taken away from him. From birth, Steve was the anointed successor to the family business his father created. It wasn't Steve's dream to take over the business, but he knew it was his duty to take on these responsibilities. While Steve spent many summers and then several years working in the business, he was relieved when his father told him they had to sell. Steve ultimately found his calling helping families and business together as they face the challenges surrounding their intergenerational transitions. Hi, this is Cammie. Steve is a family legacy advisor based in Montreal, Canada. Drawing on his own experience and some additional training, Steve works with family clients as a facilitator and sometimes as a mediator. He also married into a business family where he has witnessed a number of other complex issues that he leverages in the work he does. Steve is the author of two related books, Shift Your Family Business and Interdependent Wealth. We invite you to stick around after the interview for our takeaways. Now, on to our conversation with Steve Legler. Steve Legler, welcome to Money Tales. We're so glad you're with us. It's really great to be here, Sandy and Cami. This is going to be fun. Steve, to start off the conversation, will you orient us to your life by telling us a little about, about your journey and focusing on two to three pivotal moments that really make you the person that you are today? Oh, wow. Pivotal moments. Oh, I, I just had the uh, 30th anniversary of a pivotal moment last week. So let me go back to, I was born, I'm in Montreal, Canada. I was born here the third child, but only son of uh, an immigrant entrepreneur who had come here as a teenager and ended up starting a business and then had three kids and two of them were girls, which isn't good for, you know, having someone take over your steel business in the 1960s. So then he finally had a son and that was me. And so my earliest memories were that I was supposed to take over my dad's business. And so all through my teenage years, every summer I would go work there. And then I went to school and then what do I study in school? I had to study business because that's what you study when you're going to go take over a business. And then despite what some people counsel, you know, don't hire your kids into your business right out of school, make them go work somewhere else first. Well, my dad had heard that message, but decided it did not apply to us. And so I went straight into the family business, worked there for three years. Then it was time to go get my MBA. And I went away for two years, did my MBA, came back. And on my first day back, 
I walked by my dad's office. By this time, he had moved himself up to chairman, had hired a president who was supposed to be kind of the bridge until I was ready to take over. And I was supposed to go work for this president as his assistant for a while. And I walked by my dad's office on my first day back. And he sees me and he says, Stephen, come here. Close the door. Sit down. And I was like, what the heck is going on? And so long story short, well, our businesses have our, all our business has been going down. Our customers are scaling back and this and that. We're going to have to do something drastic. We're going to have to merge. We're going to have to sell. We're going to have to close. Something's got to go. And I was like, ah, okay. Well, so long story short, within six months, we went from about 250 employees to four. And two of us were named Steve Legler. And I had a junior after my Steve Legler. My dad had just bought himself a farm to have fun raising beef cattle or breeding beef cattle. I was left with, well, we still old, own these buildings. We got some money from the sale and we have some patented products that we got a license. And so this is your new job. And it was a little bit of an adjustment, but it was certainly a pivotal moment. And a lot of people think, oh, wow, that must have been rough. And I think, you know what? In a lot of ways, it was a relief because although it was my duty, I felt I was being the dutiful son to the person who takes over dad's business. It certainly was not my dream. And I have since learned that there are other things that I'm good at that have nothing to do with business. And so in, as a family business advisor, that I, which is what I do now, I realize that things that go on in the family circle are much more important and much more neglected. And so now I work with families more on their communication, their preparation for transitioning to the next generation, their communication, their family governance, all that kind of stuff. And I try to stay out of the business side of things completely, even though I have a bachelor's in business and an, and an MBA. So through, theoretically, I could help these family businesses with their business stuff. I prefer to work with their family stuff. So I was managing what we would call now a family office, but it was 1991. And I didn't know what a family office was, and most people didn't know then, and most people still don't know now. That was 30 years ago. That was that inflection point. And then the other key inflection point was after about 20 years of that, essentially managing family assets, which was a job that was okay, but not exactly the most fulfilling. And I started to get bored with it. I stumbled into a program in Toronto called Family Enterprise Advisor. And I just, when I say stumbled in, I, I didn't really know what I was getting myself into. I had seen an ad on LinkedIn, become a family enterprise advisor. I said, oh, that sounds interesting. Clicked on it. I got a phone call, sent the check, and there I was in this class. And I'm sitting in this room with a bunch of wealth managers, accountants, life insurance people, and they're all there because they have a lot of family business clients. And they're trying to learn about family business and what makes them tick so they can serve those clients better. And I had nothing in common with those people. But there were people at the front of the room who were telling us about families that they were working with and helping them figure out their values and their vision and their goals and, you know, transition to the next generation and prepare the rising generation. I was like, wow, that's a thing? Like, people do that? That's a job? Oh, my God. I was like, I finally figured out what I wanted to be when I grew up. But I was, like, in my late 40s by then. But 
better late than never. And so that's when I decided, okay, this is what I want to do. And that's what I've been doing ever since. Steve, let's go back to the early years of your life growing up in a five-person family. What was that like? How was money handled? And what were you learning about family dynamics as a participant in your family? There were five of us, plus my grandmother lived with us, my mother's mother. And so I never had a babysitter. Like when my parents went out, my Oma was there. And not that they went out much, but in terms of money, I remember we always used to have in the kitchen, there was this one cabinet where there was a door, where there was a book, where I guess it was a ledger of some sort. And there was always some cash in there in case somebody came and delivered a pizza or somebody, whatever, the, the, the money was there. And so there was no like hidden money. There wasn't a lot of money there, but it was just sort of, that's where it is. And, and we trust you. And then later on it became, well, you know, you should, you should get a job to make some money. So I, I ended up getting a, a paper route or paper route, as I guess some people would pronounce it, but paper route. I did it for three years and my dad had, had sort of instilled in me this importance of really tracking every last cent. So when I would go collecting once a week on Monday night, and he taught me, leave at the same time and go the same route every time. And, and it's like, at first I thought, why is he telling me to do this? But then the, the customers would come to the door with the money and the little card that I had to punch. Like it was like clockwork. And I, so I realized it was really important to like, you know, so my dad had, you know, he had started a business. He knew it was important to take care of your clients. And so then when I came home with all this money, it was like, okay, now you got to set up your accounting system to say how much was collected for this week's papers, how much was for stuff that had, you didn't collect from the week before, how many paid you in advance for weeks ahead, and then what's left of, as your profit. And so I had this, and it was, this is way before Excel. I'm talking like I had graph paper and making lines with a pen and a ruler. And I had this down, and, and I remember, oh, my God, at Christmas, I would make like 300 bucks for a couple of weeks in a row all around Christmas. We're talking like the 1970s. That was a lot of money, but I didn't, I never really knew why I was making this money because I knew that we had probably more money than a lot of, we had the biggest house on our street, but we were the last ones to get a dishwasher and a color TV. And we were the first ones to have an electric garage door opener. And so it was, there was some like mixed messaging of what's important, but it was, it was always about, we have to be careful with money and don't waste money. Dad tells the story when he came with his brother and his parents and they had $153. And when they got off the, the train after they got off the boat, he went and found a job one day, bought tools the next day, started working the day after that. And then when he would come home, he would put his money that he earned on the table for the family, not for him because he was living with his parents at the time and they were immigrants and they were... So money was never far away from kind of, it was important to do this. But then later on, when you realize, hey, we might have more money than other people, but we don't spend a lot more money than other people. Like we didn't fly away on vacation or anything. We had a, a camper and we pulled it with the car and went to the campground a couple hours away. And that was our summer vacation. So it's not like we were spending a lot. And I guess we were never made to feel too comfortable about having enough money. 
It sounds like it. So, Steve, I, I love that. Is it a paper route on your paper route that mm -hmm. you didn't you didn't feel like you needed the money? When did you start to feel money had it meant something, had value? When did you start to connect with it? It's funny because like I was making that money and I was just you know putting it in the bank, and then there was one time when I had just bought myself a stereo, like it was a turntable. And so now I wanted to go buy some records. Remember those LPs? And I remember thinking, yeah, I want to start my, my record collection. And, and I would go to this one store and they were like $6.49 for a record. And I was thinking, you know, if I could buy three, it would be about 20 bucks. And maybe I could. And so I asked for permission. I want to go and I bought, I want to buy three records and it's going to cost about 20 bucks. And I remember having this big debate about, Oh, that's not the way you should frame it. And it shouldn't be about the $20. It's just... Anyway, I, I, I learned that, that it was sometimes better not to ask too many questions and to just go do it. So I did, I went and it ended up being $20 and something because of the taxes. But I, I, there was like a risk in me going to this store to buy these three records because money was something you had to really, really be careful about. And Steve, you mentioned before about being the youngest of three children and having two older sisters, and that kind of changed your orientation to the business, the family business relative to them. Were you getting different messages about money than your sisters were when you were growing up? Was that a thing? I, I don't I don't think so. I like my sisters got jobs and summer jobs and they actually they both did work in the summers for the business, but they worked in the office. Whereas when I was fifteen I went I worked in the shop with worky boots and got all dirty. They had clerical jobs helping out, entering punch cards and stuff like that, time cards. So they worked in the business as well messaging no that but they also like had jobs and babysitting and, and make money to put money away just because it's good to have it not because you necessarily need it but that may, maybe the work itself was more important than the money in a lot of ways so it sounds like there's a lot of messaging around money but not a lot of conversation yeah th there was there was not a lot of well, so I talked about that one discussion about buying those three records. That was like, and it stands out because it was one of the few discussions where we talked about money as uh, when I was younger. Interesting. That's, it's true. We did not, we never sat down and had a family discussion about money. And what about the family business and, and you being groomed to lead it? Was that a conversation? Uh <laughs> I, I kind of wish it was, but it, it never was. So I, I alluded to the fact that despite advice to the contrary, I went straight in after finishing my Bachelor of Commerce degree at McGill. My dad at the time had joined this local family business association called CAFE, Canadian Association of Family Enterprise. So here I am, I'm like 20 years old. And he says, you know, I, I went to some of these meetings uh, and some of these advisors say you shouldn't hire your kids right out of school. And I can still remember like looking up at him, uh, hopefully like with, yeah. And then he pats me on the shoulder patronizingly and says, but don't worry, we're not going to do that. And when I think back to pivotal points in my life where something might have 
could have changed things? What if I would have said, but wait a sec, why don't we do that? Because here I am, okay? I'm, I'm in my last year. I'm about to graduate. Everyone, all my friends know I've got a job. I'm going to work for, for my father. And they're showing up every other day wearing a suit because they got some interview on campus with some company recruiting. And I'm like kind of jealous of them, but I never said it. And they were jealous of me saying, oh, you don't have to do this. You already got a job. And I could tell you later on the fact that, okay, what, is it, what does it say on my resume? Where have I worked? Like the only person who ever hired me was a guy named Dad it doesn't necessarily make me feel confident that I can go and get a job somewhere else. And so that's the biggest thing that I, when I talk to my family business clients now and they're considering bringing their offspring into the business, it's always framed around, okay, well, but where are they going to go and get some experience first? Because it really is, I don't have that many hard and fast rules that you should always do this or never do that. But that's as close as I have to a rule of, for their own good, make them go and get a real job somewhere else where their last name is not why they got their job. And they will benefit from that for the rest of their lives. Steve, did you ever dream about what you might have done had you not stepped into the family business? You talked about when it closed, when when it was communicated to you, there was a sense of relief and that it wasn't your dream to take it over. But were you dreaming? I wasn't. I was not. And maybe like it was sort of like the path of least resistance. And I never felt like I had some big ambition or some big dream. And I, and I didn't know what I wanted to do until that moment in the family enterprise advisor program where finally something clicked and I had a calling and I said, this is what I'm supposed to do. And so one of the first things as I was realizing I'm making this career pivot, I said to myself, what else do I have to learn? Like, so people suggested coaching courses and conflict, ADR, alternative dispute resolution and, and mediation courses. So I started to do all those things. And then I stumbled into the world of Bowen family systems theory. And that was like really cool, figuring out how families work and, and relating things to my own growing up and my wife's family and other families of how family systems work. And so I mentioned my, my maternal grandmother who lived with us when I was a kid. She used to say, you should become a priest. You should become a priest. And I would just laugh at her. Well, a few years ago, I'm in at Georgetown at the, the Bowen Center that Murray, Dr. Murray Bowen founded at the Georgetown University. I'm learning about Bowen family systems theory. And I look around the room and I realize half the people in here are clergy. And so my grandmother had me better pegged for what I was good at than my father did. But my father needed someone to take over his business. He didn't care what was good for me. I was his stopgap. I was his replacement. That was good for him. Nobody ever asked me, what do you want to do? What do you think you'd be good at? I was always presumed to be playing this role, and I accepted it because I was the dutiful son. It's um, amazing how those, those expectations and those relationships play a role in the decisions we make in our feeling about whether we have 
flexibility to make those decisions or not. I didn't feel I ever had a choice. Steve, tell us about after getting your MBA, when the business ultimately gets sold, you start the family office. Are you running it yourself or are you in partnership with your father or other family members at that point? It's me and my dad and more me and less him over time. And so it used to be when, you know, we would decide things or he would say, I think we should do this. And I'd say, yeah, okay. And we'd do it. And then eventually it got to, hey, what do you think we should do? And we'd make decisions. And then towards the end, it was just tell me once you've done something so I know that you did it. So it was really actually considering how stringent and direct he could be, the fact that he let me have free reign after a while, I was actually quite impressed that he was able to let go as much as he did. And like I said, now I work with other business families and sometimes that that patriarch letting go is the hardest part. Now, the big thing is, I told you he had bought that farm and he became, that was his passion project. And he loved spending time out there and so it was good that he had that because too many people retire from their job with nothing to go to and then they're twiddling their thumbs and how much golf can you play and then they come back even though they've left their offspring in charge of the business they come back because they got nothing else to do and then they stick their nose in and now the lines of who's in charge of what get blurred and that causes its, its own share of different issues. So it's nice. It sounds like he had other things he was focused on and he'd certainly trusted you to make decisions and was part of the decision-making process early on. He did trust me, I guess, as much as I hold things against him for the way I was sort of railroaded into my career. There's a lot of pluses in the way he did let me do things. And then towards the end, he had bought a farm and then he bought other properties around there. And then he got diagnosed with cancer. And I thought, oh, great, I'm going to have to go after he's gone and dispose of all this. And he surprised me. He managed to negotiate from his hospital bed four different sales of different properties. And all, all I had to do was go sign at the notary to because. And, and that was the best gift he could give me was he sold all that stuff and didn't leave me that. Wow. And I haven't shared that with many people, but it is absolutely the case that this, this was, I was dreading that, okay, he's gone and bought all this stuff. Now he's going to die and leave me to go and clean up the mess. And I'm sure he did a much better job than I could have done. So I'm thankful for that. Why do you think he did that? I don't know. And I wonder if it's because he thought I would mess it up. And, and part of the whole thing of deciding to sell the business just as your son is coming in, there could be an assumption that, oh my God, I, don't th I think he's going to screw this up, so I better sell it before he can. I, I never got the impression that he was feeling that. He never said anything like that. But deep down inside, when you look at if I look at it from how an outsider would see this, some people might think that. And they might not be wrong. I don't know. It doesn't matter. I've gotten past it. That was 30 years ago. I've done other things since then that allow me to forget about some of the negatives around that time. And, and I've raised my own kids now. And, and 
I I worry more about them than the relationship I had with my dad. Mm, that's a that's a good segue, Steve. When you met your wife, how was it to talk to her about what your family business was, which was well, depending on when you met her, a family office. No, I met her in at MBA school, and so I was coming back to take over this business. She was also from a family business, and so. So she got it. She understood. She understood it. She's also the youngest of her family. And her father had started a business and grown it quite successfully. We were a good fit in that way. And I guess we each thought that, well, the other one is kind of like financially secure. So that's a good thing. <laughs> and so we actually don't have a combined bank account. I think we do have one account because our mortgage is in there and whatever. But other than that, like there's no, like I have my money and she has her money and I got this and then I pay this bill and she pays that bill and it all kind of worked itself out and we're 28 years into the marriage and it so far so good. So, but, but in terms of talking about money with our kids, that's a whole other, cause they know that both their grandfathers built and sold some relatively interesting sized companies. And so my kids were able to go to boarding school and they're now able to go to school in the U S which for Canadians compared to, we could pay like 5,000 bucks a year here or 50,000 U S dollars down there. It's a, it's a, it's a big difference. And so they understand that they're privileged, but we certainly didn't live a lavish lifestyle because we it's funny when it when it's when you didn't make the money maybe you don't treat it the same way there are the fruits of your parents that have afforded you certain things there's just a whole different level of respect that you have towards it and and maybe how you treat it and think about it what about the fact that you mentioned you your parents role modeled more than they talked about it how did you and your wife approach talking about money? Was it through role modeling or through direct communication? It's a lot of role modeling because we also, we, de we never took lavish vacations. Like we'd fly somewhere and rent a, a motorhome for a couple of weeks and drive around. And that, there, but there, there was no flying. Well, okay, we did go to Brazil. That was like the biggest trip that we had because I had some friends there that we spent some time with. But it was role modeling, and we did talk about money. We did talk about, we have talked about the fact that we're in a privileged situation, but that doesn't mean that we've got more money than we know what to do with. And it's very important that we spend the money on things that are important, like their education, and they took that seriously and, and have done very well in their studies and, and have, you know, they understand that it's an investment in them and they haven't necessarily had to ask for a lot of things. But I mentioned boarding school a couple of minutes ago and it's interesting the kinds of people that your kids will meet in boarding school. So this was, we, we had boarding schools that were like an hour and a half drive away, but other kids at that school were from Europe and Mexico and China and, and so what class of people from those countries are coming to Canada to go to boarding school? It's not the working class. 
And so they, they met interesting people who had daddy's credit card and were able to do whatever they wanted with. And even then my son went to school that he's in Chicago and he's got all these international friends and, and he says, you know, we go out for dinner and people are ordering the Dom Perignon and all this stuff. And he's like, I can't keep up. I was like, don't keep up with that. But some people, that's the reality that they have. And so it's really interesting for your kids to sort of face this. It's, it's not a huge problem. And it's, and it's very different than hanging out with people who don't have any money and, and maybe being expected to pay for them and things like that. So I'm really happy with the way my kids, I think they have a very realistic grasp on money. And crazily enough, I attribute a, a lot of it to watching Shark Tank. So we watch Shark Tank and I'd have the remote. And this is when they were like, you know, eight and 10. And or maybe, I don't even know if it was on back then, but maybe 11 and 13, whatever. And someone would come and say, you know, I want $100,000 for 10% of my company. And I'd pause the TV and i say, okay, what's the valuation? And, you know, we talk about. And so they, we actually watched a lot of Shark Tank. And just, I say this now to clients that I have who have young kids, and they go, how do we talk about money with our kids? And I say, watch Shark Tank. Don't try to have one big money conversation on one day and share everything. Find ways, find teaching moments. You're driving down the street and you see a billboard for the McDonald's Happy Meal for $4.99. Talk about, oh, what does that mean? Is it, do you think it's, if you bought each of the things separately, would it cost more? And what about this? Just get them talking about money so that they feel that they're able to ask you questions about money so that you can have these teaching moments here and there. That's how you teach kids every, it's, this week or that day or this happened and some conversation came up. And that's what I think a lot of people don't feel comfortable doing, but I just sort of, you know, let's just, just talk about, ask them questions, see if they understand, be there to answer their questions. I love that. I think that's really great advice and um, way to turn anything into a teachable moment. I'm sure the folks at Shark Tank would appreciate that as well. Steve, I want to go back to what you were saying a little bit earlier about you and your wife keeping your money separate. That's something that that many couples choose to do, and it would just be great if you would wouldn't mind diving down a little deeper. Um, you said you guys have figured out what you you know each of you pay for when it comes to some of the expenses related to your offspring. What have you decided to do? How do you and your wife navigate those conversations among each other? And is there anything that our listeners can learn from your experience with your wife in those conversations? I was worried that this conversation would get to something about what can people learn from you? And, and I want to be clear, I am not trying to say that anyone should do anything the way we did it. And I didn't come on here to try to profess any of that. And I know you're not suggesting that I am. As it turned out, when my wife's family had their liquidity event, there were a lot of trusts put in place, including some stuff for the kids for education. And so those major expenses like boarding school and universities, private universities in the U.S. are something that grandpa is the one who has paid for. And those are clearly <laughs> among the largest expenses that we've ever had. And so those are all taken care of there, which leaves more of the run of the mill. So I pay the electricity bill and my wife pays the gas bill and I pay the, 
the city taxes and she pays for the whatever, the, the sprinkler system and the lawn. You know, it's just sort of got divvied up over the years as things came up. And that's how we do it. We just keep our things separate and nothing falls through the cracks and we've managed to do it that way. I could also understand why it's not the standard way of doing it. But I also know of a lot of anecdotally about, you know, the husband comes home and puts the paycheck in and then gives the wife an allowance or the, or the wife manages it. Like, whatever works. The, the problem with a lot of those is there's a lot of spouses that are not financially literate or involved in it. And when then the other one dies, now the person is lost. And it's usually the patriarch dies and, the, and then the mother is left, but she doesn't even know how to, you know, balance a checkbook. We don't have any of that kind of a problem. And I'm sure my kids won't be in that situation because they're aware enough of what's going on. We never said, you know, we never had a meeting and said, we will not have a common, but just sort of, it never sort of evolved over time. It sounds like, and it, it evolved. Yeah. And it sounds like you guys are doing a great job negotiating when new expenses come up. It just, it kind of works itself out. I appreciate you sharing that because I do think that a lot of couples have different ways of handling finances. And it's always good to hear what other people are doing because it just gives you some more insight into how you approach things for yourself. So thank you for that. I haven't partaken in this, but I've thought about it a lot. Those lottery tickets that pay you so much a week for life. That's always been the kind of thing that, and it fits nicely with your how much is enough. Like if I knew that every Monday morning or whatever it is, another $7,000 is coming into my account or whatever the heck it is, there's different ones. I wouldn't worry about, signing a contract to deal with something because I know that, well, I'm, no matter what I do, there's more money coming in. Not that I have to bust my ass to go and, you know, beat the bushes to put food on the table. And part of me isn't doing what I'm doing necessarily for the money, although I charge people for it. It's just sort of knowing that it's there so you don't have to worry about it. And that number is different for everybody. Steve, Steve, tell us, in your, your current role today, working with families and business together and, and helping them kind of work on their relationships and how they're communicating and doing things, how has that work formed your current relationship with money? Wow. It, I don't know that it has changed much about my personal relationship with money. What I can tell you is I have seen a whole variety of different things from clients within a family and how volatile, how dangerous, how, how explosive the whole money issue can be, especially when, when you have some siblings who work in the business and others who don't and where Maybe the salaries become a huge part of the money that it goes out to the shareholders as, as somebody working in. And then one of the shareholders that they don't get much in terms of a dividend versus others where the salaries are kept low because the company is above and beyond everything else. And so it's just, it's shown me that there's no, it's all over the place. It's all over the place. And 
when there are conflicts between the family members, money is usually not that far removed. It might not be central, and it's, it's rarely central, but it's, it's right there. Like there's a conflict between siblings, and yeah, it's not about money, but yeah, it is about money. <laughs> Is that right? I've always been curious if money's the problem or if there's some other problem that just gets manifested in the way uh, so yeah, it shows it, up. It is the place where everything ends up coming out. I think more often than not, it's some other personality clash, misunderstandings a lot. And then it's when, when the money gets out of whack that it sort of really starts waving a red flag. Heightens it. Yeah. It just makes it more noticeable. And all of a sudden, this problem, which in one family is no big deal, but in another family, it became a big deal because the number was much higher. Yeah. Oftentimes, it's the number that the dollar figure that made it that much more unpalatable or intolerable or that was the straw that broke the camel's back or something it's it's it the money is usually not that far away steve for you you mentioned money was something to be really careful about and that's something your dad taught you do you still feel this way yes but not to the same extent that he did i think i didn't grow up ever wanting for anything and the stories I heard from my father's childhood of having to go and do things because they didn't have enough in certain situations when they were refugees. I understand where he came from and didn't really have a childhood and so I still feel it's it's needs to be respected but I don't I don't have the same attitude towards it that that he did. Steve, what's one piece of money wisdom that you'd like to share with our listeners that hasn't come up yet in our conversation? I would just say that realize that the way you think about money and deal with money, maybe it works for you. Don't assume that other people have the same thing, the same view. And working with families at different levels and different things going on, that's what I keep seeing, is that people kind of think that, well, the way I look at money is like the right way. And so when other people look at it in a different way, there's something wrong with them because really I know what, like there are so many different ways to look at money and it affects so many more things than we're even willing to admit. And maybe that relates to when you're young and you meet someone that you're thinking of spending the rest of your life with you're better off having the money conversation before you go too far to make sure that you're going to be able to get along because there's just this whole thing in our industry of women now being the wealth owners or the or more wealthy than the men which a generation or so ago was very rare i worry about some women that might meet some guy who feels emasculated if she makes more money than him or has more money or inherits more money. And it, it's just 
it needs to be worked out and it needs to be understood and it needs to be discussed because otherwise things are going to come up later and at a maybe not at a convenient time. So I don't know. My kids are not there yet. And who knows what's going to happen when they are. But I'm hoping that if they ask me for guidance, that I will be, give, be able to give them some guidance around how they should approach the subject. So Steve, to close out this conversation, what's your next money conversation going to be? And who's it going to be with? It's going to be my son who's graduating in the next few weeks and moving to start his first job in New York. My wife has been planning to go there. He's in Chicago to go and help him move. And I don't think, I'm not sure he wants her to go there and help him move. I think he just wants her to pay for a mover. My son has been away at school and school's been paid for through this thing that from grandpa, but now he's graduated. Now he's on his own and he's got himself a good job, but he's got to find a place to live and he's got to figure out how to get there. And my wife is trying to be the mother who takes care of everything. And I'm kind of saying like, well, I'm not taking care of anything, but maybe you shouldn't do as much as you're planning to do either. And, and then, but then does it become a money thing rather than a labor thing, right? This is a work in progress and it's going to come to a head in the next few weeks and it's going to involve my, it's, it's not so much my discussion. It's me trying to align with my wife to try to figure out how to deal with this whole situation with our son, which is a really interesting, and it's, it's not like a huge make or break kind of an amount. It's just kind of like getting him off on the right, hey, you've got to figure out your own stuff, and he'll be able to do just fine. It's almost more, is my wife going to be able to stay out of it? I don't know. Steve, you talked about finding teaching moments. And your point was, don't wait till it's the huge stuff. And you know, this seems like a great teaching moment opportunity. Don't, yeah, don't wait for huge things. Don't try to save everything all up for one conversation. Just, just talk about it a little bit more. Steve Legler, what a great conversation. Thank you so much for sharing with us the stories of your life and how money played a role in it. And we're just really glad that you found your calling and that you're doing the work you're doing and getting so much satisfaction out of it. It's been fun. And yeah, I've been on other podcasts where we talk about family business stuff a lot. And I say the same things over and over. You guys made me go all over the place into things that I hope that people found entertaining and, and useful. And please remember the part about don't think that, oh, I'm saying this and you should do it that way because that's how I do it because that's not me at all. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for sharing and thanks for going in these directions with us. My pleasure. Cameron, it was so fun talking to Steve. I was really looking forward to the conversation because on paper, his story seemed like it would be very similar to Vincent Valeri's. They're both Canadians. They're both the only son in their families. They were both sons to fathers who were immigrants, who created businesses. And both groomed to take over the family business that was taken away from them before they had the chance to actually become the leader of the organization. So really fascinating. And their stories are so different. That's why I love many tales. No one has the same exact money story. No, and everyone has something to learn. Sandy, could we start with 
his one comment that his only boss on his resume was his dad and how tough that was for Steve. It sounded like it was. And this is something that is very common for people who work in their family businesses. Just like Steve said, if the family doesn't require the family members to work in another job in some other company first, the family members never get the opportunity to develop their own independence and have their own experience as an employee somewhere else who needs to be accountable to some other boss, and to use Steve's line, who doesn't have the same last name as them. I thought it was really interesting when he talked about that being a given recommendation in his new capacity. And it wasn't obvious when he was going into his family business that he should make sure he gets this experience outside the family company. Right. In fact, his dad was aware of that advice and just poo-pooed it and said, we're not going to do that here. For our Money Tale listeners who are in a situation of having a family with a business, uh, this is good advice to take into consideration. Sandy, what did you think when Steve talked about that period when his dad, he was nearing the end of his life and he sold the land? And Steve said, if you look at it from an outsider's perspective, you could assume that dad was afraid I'd screw up the sale if I was in charge. I thought that was a surprising response because as Steve was telling the story to us, I was assuming that dad realized Steve wasn't really interested in selling the land and wouldn't, would be bothered by that process. And dad was trying to do Steve a favor. I think it highlights what can happen when people aren't in conversation with each other. If we're not in conversation about the decisions we're making, about why we're making them, about the implications, we might each make assumptions and those assumptions could be right or they could be wrong. Oftentimes when working with clients, especially when clients are interacting with their children, there's a lot of assumptions on the parents' part and on the kids' part. Oftentimes those assumptions can be off and can lead to other assumptions that sort of snowball. So it highlights for me the benefit of having open conversations about decisions and especially money-related decisions. Sandy, that was so good. If you don't have conversations, assumptions are made. And that's really for everything, but we're talking money here and it really, it underscores such an important message of money tales. Kimmy, another thing I, I appreciated Steve sharing with us was about how he and his wife have separate finances. They keep separate checking accounts. They've divvied up the bills separately between the two of them. I appreciated that that for them that worked. And I, I feel like for everybody's got to figure out what's appropriate for their situation, whether you, you combine it and it's one checking account or you keep it separate and both are fine. I completely agree. I've seen three different models. There's the let's keep everything separate, the Steve and his wife model. There's the let's combine everything together, which I'll label the conventional model. And I think for some people, that conventional model has a lot of deep-seated expectations around it. And then the third model I've seen is the yours, mine, and ours model where there's three different buckets of money. My expenses are paid from my bucket, your expenses are paid from your bucket, and our combined expenses are paid from the combined bucket. I don't think there's a right or wrong way, but I do know that when some couples 
decide to take the less conventional route, they can have some concern and stress and anxiety around it, which isn't necessary because as you said, find what works best for you and go for it. There's no rules. Sandy, my, my next takeaway was I, I loved I loved the Shark Tank conversation. His line was, find teaching moments when he's talking about his kids. And, and really, even in his consulting, I think he, he consults to his clients to find teaching moments. And then we asked, how do, how do you do this? And he brought up Shark Tank. And I laughed. I, what a great tool I need for your family to have conversations around investing and finances. What about you? What do you think? I appreciated how descriptive Steve was. I could imagine him pausing the show and just saying, okay, wait, let's talk. <laughs> let's get out a piece of paper. Let's figure out the valuation. Uh, and I thought that was beautiful and engaging. And something that we can all relate to, I think just about everyone's seen Shark Tank at this point. And I want to thank Steve because I've always enjoyed that show and I didn't quite know why, but I think Shark Tank inherently teaches all of us about about business valuations and entrepreneurialism. Find those teachable moments where you can and, and exploit them. And importantly, as Steve mentioned, all these teachable moments and money conversations don't have to happen all in one place on one day at the same time. Mm -hmm. Let it be an ongoing conversation. Sandy, thank you. Thank you, Steve Legler. Yes, thank you, Steve. Thank you, Money Tales listeners. We learned so much from each and every one of these conversations. Hey, listeners, let us know how you're doing. And if you find a certain podcast that you are particularly enjoying, a certain episode, or if you're hoping we talk to someone on one of our episodes, let us know. You can email us at podcastsatasperient.com. Thank you, Cammie. Thanks, Sandy. You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog, Fathom, head on over to Asperient.com slash podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Money Tales. Money Tales.